We are continuing in our, sermon, our study of the sermon letter to the Hebrews this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 1286, Hebrews 13. As you're flipping over there, uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been working our way through chapter 12. We have seen that the author is beginning to transition from a deep discussion of theology, of the truths, discussion geared towards theological truths, toward one that is more exhortatory, exhorting, giving us practical application and how we should respond to those truths that he's been teaching us. Uh, here in chapter 13, that gets, that application focus gets much more clear, gets much more obvious as he gives a set of very practical applications for this specific con- congregation in the midst of their trials and persecutions. Now, as we turn to God's Word, as always, We need Him to speak to us through it. So if you're able now, please stand with me while I pray for exactly that and remain standing as I read from Hebrews chapter 13. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You for Your Word in which You reveal Yourself, in which You reveal Your truth and how the world fits together. We pray, Father, as we study Your Word that You would give us Your Spirit, give us Yourself, that we might see the truth, and believe it, and understand it, and apply it faithfully in our lives. Glorify yourself in the reading and the preaching of your word this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Hebrews chapter 13. This is God's word. Let brotherly love continue. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. I read a story this week uh, in which a woman was reflecting on her experience of playing uh, community league softball as a teenager in high school. Uh, She said, we didn't know each other when the the games first started, when we first stepped out under the lights together. We were strangers in gray polyester uniforms with orange ball caps. The start of the opening game, there was a palpable feeling of possibility. My teammates were talented. The coach was tough. And as going through the season, as he invested time watching us, he positioned us and repositioned us in different roles, playing to our individual strengths. Sounds like a good coach, right? As each player lived into her giftedness, there was more and more synergy and success. Now, as we think about the last maybe 15 or 20 years, and especially the last five or six years, instead of feeling like a single team with diversely gifted players, it feels like we have found ourselves in a cultural moment where we, where we feel like we're on different teams, maybe playing different sports altogether, sometimes even on different planets. And this is true in society at large, of course, and sadly it is no less true inside the church. We could argue about the causes of this, why it's happened. We could prognosticate about where it might lead, but all that much help. Such a debate would, as much as some people would enjoy it, such a debate would, as the saying goes, generate more heat than light. But does that mean that we are stuck here? Does that mean we just have to live with this situation as it is? And yes, I know that it's less true in Brigham City, where we are set out from, you know, further out from the center of things. It's less true here, but it's not no issue here, as 
several of the floats and peach days this last weekend were pretty clear about. Do we just have to give up and accept the partisan awfulness that is present in, in our society today that increasingly plagues us even within the walls of the church? Is there a better way? Now, a few caveats before we jump in. First, probably most important, I said a couple of weeks ago, this is all about application. This sermon and the next several are going to be pretty heavy on uh, what to do, practical application. One could even say on Christian duty. So I'm asking you all to remember that this sermon does not stand alone. It stands on the shoulders of every sermon that I've preached from this pulpit for the last year, going through the first 11 and a half, 12 chapters of Hebrews. The author has given us a solid gospel framework, a clear picture of who God is, of the God who redeems a people for himself of his own good pleasure, and not because we have earned it in any way. But not working to earn salvation does not imply that there's no right response to salvation to be, having been given that salvation. If this sermon seems heavy on a call to obedience, and especially the next couple will, uh, then if it seems heavy on the imperative, remember that it's built on 11 and a half chapters of the indicative of what is true. Um, and without that indicative, the imperative will make no sense, will be functionally, functionally meaningless. So that's one caveat. The second caveat is that I'm going to be talking primarily about life in the church today. Certainly there could be broader applications for the life of a citizen in the United States or a citizen of Utah or of as an employee in a job or a dozen other circles in which God has put us. That's legitimate application perhaps, but those societies could, and could certainly benefit from some of this. But outside of the context of Christianity... Much of what we're going to talk about is going to loo- be lost as a, as a basis for implementation in those circles. So with those caveats in mind, obviously our passage this morning is a bit short. It's a single verse. It's three words in Greek. Uh, but for all of its brevity, its place at the beginning of this chapter is no accident. This is the heading of the whole section. This is the summary of that everything else in the chapter will fall under. All the commands that the author digs into throughout the whole rest of the chapter fall under this overarching theme. Now, I titled this sermon and this section of, this, the, of Hebrews, A Symphony of Sanctification. Now, if you're, I grew up, I'm a nerd. You know, I just have decided to own it at this point. Uh, my family was big into classical music, so symphonies were a thing that we were a little familiar with. If you're not, a symphony is a longer piece of music in which there are a couple of major themes that are woven together where one becomes more prominent and then another and then back and forth in different kind of developments of that same theme. That's what Hebrews 13 is. There are a a number of sub-themes that we're going to talk about as we go through this, but they all weave together to create one tapestry, maybe I could say, uh, one symphony that works toward a single goal, and it is sanctification. This is what sanctification looks like in terms of our lived experience in the world. Uh, And so that's what we're going to be talking about over the next few sermons here, uh, the symphony of sanctification. The whole chapter falls under this overarching theme, let brotherly love abide or continue or endure. 
And we'll get into the specifics of how that plays out, obviously, over the next few weeks. But I wanted to spend a little time considering the concept of brotherly love as a whole before we delve into those practical mechanics. Also, just a heads up, if you read ahead this week, and I encourage you to do so, the exhortations listed in this chapter don't encompass a comprehensive look at brotherly love. This chapter doesn't give you everything there is to say about what brotherly love is. Rather, it looks merely at those aspects of brotherly love which the author chose to focus on for this specific community, what they would need in their particular local context and historical context. These specific aspects are very significant as we think through how to foster this love in our local context. But again, they're not exhaustive. To get us started, we want to think about some big picture ideas so that we'll have context for the mechanics. Once we get down into the gears and the, you know, doodads and bebobs and whatever that fit together to make the engine, to get understanding of how all of that fits together, we need to look at the big picture first. And so we're going to answer three questions. First, in what context does the author enjoin this brotherly love? In what context? Second, from what source does this brotherly love come? And third, toward what end does this brotherly love move us? In what context, from what source, and toward what end? So first, in what context does the author enjoin this particular brotherly love? If we think about the concept of uh, brotherhood uh, as it has been used in different cultures or societies and histories, there's obviously there's a huge range of how that could be applied. Um, Ultimately, though, all of those possibilities boil down to three large categories. Natural brotherly love, civil brotherly love or fraternity, and religious fraternity. Natural fraternity, natural brotherhood is that which grows or is felt on the basis of some objective connection to the same person. That is, normally, we feel greater closeness with and mutual concern for those who are our biological siblings, our immediate blood kin, right? This is obviously the most common use of brother and brotherhood. By extension, it applies, if in greater or lesser degree, to others of your biological family, your family of origin. It is even applied more broadly to all those descended from a common ancestor, uh, whether real or imagined. Thus, the the Roman Empire, the Roman city especially, uh, considered themselves connected because they saw themselves as descended from Romulus and Remus, the legendary brothers who supposedly founded the city of Rome. Um, Likewise, the Israelites were defined as being the children of Abraham, descended from Abraham by blood. And as that circle expands outward from your immediate family, usually the sense of closeness, the sense of connection kind of decreases, dissipates a little bit the further away you get from those immediate connections. Uh, I'm closer to my wife and kids than I am to my my cousins. I'm closer to my first cousins than I am to my fourth cousins, so on and so forth. Closer to any cousin than to other people of kind of generally Northwestern European extraction, you know, British or whatever. Uh, Ultimately, all humans are connected through Noah and through Adam. We see this in Acts 17. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. God made from one man. We are all biologically connected, however distantly. And there's a sense in which this most broad brotherhood does apply here. 
as every human being descended from Adam and Eve, is like Adam and Eve, made in the image of God and worthy of dignity. It is appropriate for us to apply that brotherly love enjoined by the author to all mankind. John Owen put it this way, There is a love due unto all mankind to be exercised as opportunity and circumstances do require. We are to do good to all men, as Paul writes in Galatians 6. That said, this passage, in this passage rather, that's a distant application, not a primary application. For all that it's valid, it's a legitimate application, it's not really the target at which the author is aiming. He's not telling them, love every human being. Again, legitimate application, not primary here. Second type of brotherhood or fraternity, there is a a civil brotherhood that forms as people voluntarily group together into various societies, clubs, organizations, so on and so forth, even to the idea of nationality, which constitute bonds of brotherhood, as it were, between like-minded people. We feel greater association and connection with those who hold similar or identical ideas and priorities as we do. The civil brotherhood is not what is meant here. In fact, it is probably the most dangerous counterfeit to the true brotherhood intended here that is present in the world today. The reality is that in most places in the United States, a Christian who disagrees with members or the leadership of her church doesn't have to stay and deal with the disagreement. She can just transfer her membership to another church right down the street that fits better with whatever that tertiary thing is. Now, on the one hand, That can be a good thing when the disagreement is over substantive theological differences. You know, just as one example, should we baptize infants, yes or no? Okay, legitimate, honest, diligent Christians genuinely seeking the Scriptures have come to different conclusions on that. And so it's understandable that we might end up worshiping in different contexts in different churches, and that is appropriate. It's an important issue, rightly results in different congregations who believe and practice differently. On the other hand, when this is applied to minor theological disagreements, should we sing praise choruses or hymns or psalms or some combination, how do we structure the music, when when that sort of approach is applied to such minor theological disagreements or applied to disagreements outside the realm of theology, this is utterly disastrous. It is catastrophic. We've seen this over and over again in the last three three to five years, especially as responses to politics, responses to COVID, responses to the upheavals in our country and, you know, 15 or 20 other things that I'm sure you could think of. As those disagreement upheavals have prompted Christians to move from one biblically faithful congregation to another based solely on what is more suited to their opinions on these external things. Now, that may not sound all that bad, but in the end, it is utterly catastrophic because it means that we are associating with each other in Christ, choosing a church on the basis of those external things rather than on the basis of Christ and His gospel. Over and over and over again, I have heard of people, not in this church, but I've heard of people in churches in the United States leaving their church over politics. I have almost never heard anybody adjust their politics on the basis of doctrine in in the church. 
Not in every case, not in every person, but for many, if not most, this indicates that we care about those X. Again, not in itself sinful. It's not wrong to create with like-minded people over things. Fine. While not sinful in itself, is nevertheless the most tempting and dangerous substitute there is in our world for the true brotherhood to which we are called in this passage. Which, of course, brings us to what actually is being spoken of here. The brotherhood that Paul, it's the same brotherhood that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 4. I'm just going to read it. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The brotherly love to which we are called is this context. As Christians, we have received a gracious adoption into the family of God. Jesus is our older brother. The Father is our Father. And other Christians who have likewise been adopted into that family are by virtue of that adoption your brothers and sisters, Christian. They are your family. This is the context that the author is speaking of here. He commands that brotherly love must remain, must continue, must abide within the church, among believers, among those who profess the name of Christ, within the body of Christ. We must actively pursue love for one another in the name of the family to which we have each and all been joined by grace. This is the context. This is the context that the author is speaking to in this passage. This group of people sitting in this room right now, together with all other faithful Christians who worship at different churches, but who are faithfully pursuing the true Christ. Christian, these truly are your brothers and sisters. You are family. But where does this brotherly love come from? What is its source? Now, I've already hinted at this a little bit at where I'm going, but at the end of the day, it comes from our joint adoption into Christ's family by grace. You didn't earn it. You couldn't earn it. I didn't earn it. I couldn't earn it. None of us are here because we earned our way into adoption. That ain't how it works. Adoption into Christ's family by grace uh, along with justifying you, declaring you holy because of Christ's blood shed in your place, along with justifying you and sanctifying you, that is, making you more and more to be in truth what He declared you to be in justification, in addition to justification, in addition to sanctification, He also adopted you. He also adopted you. The Westminster Larger Catechism defines adoption in this way. Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for His only Son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of His children, have His name put upon them, the Spirit of His Son given to them, are under His fatherly care and dispensations, are admitted to all the liberties and all the privileges of the sons of God, are made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory Glory, hallelujah. 
You are not a child that God is ashamed of. You are not a child that God is ashamed of. You are not the one that he hides in the back bedroom when the company comes over. You have been given his spirit. You are under his care, not merely his care as the sovereign king of the universe, the way every human being and everything that exists is. You are under his care as your father who loves you. You have been granted all of the privileges of being the son, the child of God, including inheriting the full weight of God's promises. I've used this illustration before. Who is it who has the temerity to wake the king up in the middle of the night to ask for a glass of water? His son. His beloved son. The child that he loves. And he delights to help. Now, of course, our God doesn't sleep in the middle of the night. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But we have that access, that boldness to be able to go to our Father who loves us, knowing that He will, even when He has to discipline us, that He delights in us, that we are His sons and daughters. You are welcome and you are delighted in, not because you earned it, simply because He chose to put His redeeming love on you, period. He chose. 1 John chapter 3 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Inasmuch as we are consistently aware of the gracious adoption that we have been given, We are enabled more and more to love our brothers and our sisters in this new family rightly. Inasmuch as we allow ourselves to be distracted from this gracious adoption, to look at worldly concerns and fights and bickerings and, 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 you know, you know that list just doesn't ever stop. The more we allow ourselves to be distracted by all of that mess, the less we are able to love our brothers and sisters rightly. When we lose track of the source, our gracious adoption, we end up replacing brotherly love that Christ has called us to with mere pragmatism. What has she done for me lately? What could he do for me if I leveraged him properly, if I twisted his arm just right? What could he do for me? That so-called friendship is entirely of the world and it is utterly abhorrent to Christ. We are called to love as Christ has loved us, with our whole being, unstintingly, sacrificially, not on the basis of pragmatism or mutual benefit, but purely on the basis of grace. Unearned favor. Christian, you have been adopted by grace, so you are to love your brothers and sisters, those who have likewise been adopted by grace. But toward what end? To what end is brotherly love directing us and moving us and shaping us? Here it is helpful to see, by contrast, what happens when this brotherly love doesn't abide. It's hard for us to picture what that looks like because we're not good at it. We're real good at it not being present. We're real good at recognizing that. So this is, again, this is John Owen. He was a, a pastor and a theologian in the 1600s. 1700s, reflecting on the world that he saw around him. And we all know how much more fun the world around us is than the world was in the 1600s, but still. 
John Owen, reflecting on this, said, said it this way. He said, brotherly love is abiding in its power and effic- eff- effectiveness, efficacious exercise, only in some corners of the earth. Envy, wrath, selfishness, love of the world, with coldness in all the concerns of religion, have possessed the place of it. The place of brotherly love where it should be found has been replaced by that list. Envy, wrath, selfishness, love of the world, and coldness in the concerns of the faith. In vain shall men wrangle and contend about their differences in opinions, faith, and worship, pretending to design the advancement of religion by an imposition of their persuasions on others. Let me translate that into modern English. We in our selfishness, in our worldliness, think that we're going to make the world better, make the church better if everyone would just be like me. Just do what I said, just do what I think, just be like me and everything will be great, we'll all get along. But it's a lie. Unless this holy love be again introduced among all those who profess the name of Christ all the concerns of the faith will more and more run to ruin. Unless this brotherly love is the central feature of who we are and how we interact, the concerns of Christ in our lives will run to ruin. That is a big statement. What do I mean? Next to faith in Christ and the profession of that faith, The whole of life and beauty and all that is good in Christ depends primarily on the exercise of brotherly love. Next to faith in Christ alone, accepting that single thing, this is the most important thing in our lives. Accepting only the love of God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, this Mutual love of those who are partakers in the same gracious adoption. This is the most important thing there is. And it's important in two ways. It's important for the building up of the church. And it's important for the declaration of the gospel to the world. It's important for the building up, the mutual edification of the church. And for the declaration of the gospel in the world. First, as to the building up of the church, you will remember that this letter was written to a congregation, a group of Christians undergoing a warm and increasing persecution for the sake of Christ, for the name of Christ's sake. If, you, if you've ever tried to do something difficult and lengthy, you will know how much mutual encouragement is a source of strength. The classic example, of course, is running a marathon. You get There's a point where you get to about the 20th mile and it's like, I'm done. I'm not running anymore. But there's still another you know, mile and a bit to go. And hearing encouragement from anybody, but especially from those who know you and love you, fuels you, gives you the ability to keep going in the midst of that. Even from strangers, but especially from friends and brothers, knowing that they're there, that they're supporting you, that they're excited for you, delighting in you, carrying you if need be, gives us strength to endure, which is the whole point that the author is making throughout all of Hebrews. Endure in the faith. This is the most desperate need of this congregation. Ecclesiastes says, Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. 
A threefold cord is not quickly broken. When we are loving each other as Christ commands, we are stronger together than the sum of our strengths. We are greater than the sum of our parts when we are doing this brotherly love thing rightly. If you want the church as a whole to continue at all, this is a necessary condition. Owen puts it starkly, the continuance of the church depends in the second place on the continuance of brotherly love. It does so in the first place on the faith of Christ Jesus, but in the second place it depends on this mutual love. If you want the church to continue at all, this is a necessary condition. Much of the rest of this chapter deals with practical ways that this brotherly love is to be fulfilled in each other within Christ's body. And we'll spend time in future weeks looking at those, some of these things in some more detail and what that actually looks like. But at heart, if this sacrificial brotherly love doesn't exist in a church, it isn't a church of Christ. At best, it's just a rotary club. At best, if you want the church to continue, let brotherly love abide. But second, if you want the world to see the glory of God and be one to the gospel, brotherly love is absolutely essential. We are often deeply concerned, and rightly so, we are often deeply concerned to make sure that we get the right words and the right arguments and figure out which verse applies to which thing and so that we can have our arguments in place and know what to say in that moment when we're talking to a non-Christian. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to have prepared in advance. We should be ready to give a defense of what we believe, right? This is not an, uh, a, uh, an, an optional thing. But it's not the primary concern. I read a, a quote this week that I, I was bowled over by. Here it is. A just, good, loving, and upright life does not win, the approval, win us the approval of God, but it often wins Him praise from the watching world. Put differently, obedience proves the reality of God more profoundly than apologetics. Obedience proves the reality of God more profoundly than apologetics because I can say whatever I want. But until it changes my life, there's no reason for anybody to listen. When people see Christians treating each other exactly as badly as the world treats people, they will see no value and great hypocrisy in us. When the world sees Christians treating each other with sacrificial love, they may still hate Christ. But they will be drawn to that which does not and cannot exist in the world apart from Christ. It may not result in their conversion. And giving a defense of our faith will, again, always be necessary. We have to be able to give an answer for what we believe, the hope that we have. But if there is a congruence between your life and your witness, your words will carry far more weight than if there is a sharp discontinuity between those two things. If your life and your witness are unified, then your words carry much more weight. If your life and your witness oppose each other, people will listen to your life. So the question, brothers and sisters, is this. 
And again, we're going to be looking at details in the coming weeks, but the question for today and for this week is this. How is Christ calling you to show genuine, sacrificial love for your brothers and sisters today? How is Christ calling you to show genuine, sacrificial love for your brothers and sisters today? As the love of Christ and the abiding knowledge of your own gracious adoption fills you, you will be transformed to show that same love to your brothers and sisters. So, to what practical steps is He calling you today on the basis of His gracious adoption of you? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your grace and mercy. We thank You that You have called us to this brotherly love. We thank You that when we fail, and we fail a lot, You do not reject us. Our adoption, our justification, our sanctification are as secure as Christ's blood and can never, ever be changed. And so, Lord, on the basis of who you have made us in Christ, we beg you, lead us into this response. Lead us to love each other more deeply, more sacrificially as you have loved us in particular, tangible, practical ways. We pray, Lord, that as you do that, you would grow us in sanctification, grow us in knowledge of our adoption, in belief in our adoption, grow us in boldness. Make us different from the world, that your name would be praised. This is the work that you've said you're about, and so, Lord, we pray that you would do it in us. Glorify yourself, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.